Will you please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. And we want everybody to be able to look at the passage that we'll be considering in Hebrews 2. So these gentlemen have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention so that they can get one of those Bibles to you. Gene, we've got one right here, over here. And they are marked at Hebrews 2. And those Bibles are our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of Scripture. So please keep that as our present to you. Today we celebrate one of the many holidays on our culture's annual calendar. That calendar has a couple of categories of holidays. There are civic holidays and there are religious holidays. The civic holidays include things like President's Day, Memorial Day, Labor Day, and others. And then there are religious holidays, Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And since many of these special days mean a break from our normal routine of work or from school, most of us enjoy and are thankful for them. But that enjoyment can be and often is separated from the actual reason for the holiday. For example, a college in New York surveys Americans every year just before Independence Day. And he asked and it asks from whom we declared independence and when. In recent years they found that nearly half could not answer one or both of those correctly. And you see friends, it's easy to mistake the holiday for the trappings that go with it. And so when we think of the 4th of July, we think of fireworks and picnics and a day off of work, but not necessarily our Declaration of Independence from Britain in 1776, in case you were one of the half that, that didn't know. Now, if that's true of civic holidays, it's all the more true of those in the other category, the religious holidays, since the only way to know what those are about is from the Bible. If we're not clear on what the Bible says, then we'll see them almost entirely in terms of the traditions that have developed around them. Here we are for Easter that has its own traditions. And yet bunnies and Easter egg hunts, are, which are really a lot of fun, but the truth is they have absolutely nothing to do with the story that's behind what we celebrate at Easter. The way that stuff all came about is a somewhat long and weird story that I don't have time to explain and I wouldn't want to bore you with even if I, I did. But we do want to answer the question that is the title of this message, and we have it at the top of the outline that's on the back of your program. I invite you to take a look there, and we have on the screen, what is Easter really about? Well, I can summarize it in less than 30 seconds. Easter is about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, providing what is necessary to take us from where we are to where we need to go. The, event, the events that are celebrated at Easter are central to the Bible's one story that starts in a garden paradise, ends in a spectacular city, but is a mess in between. And you and I are in that in-between mess, and Easter tells us how to get out of it. Now, the passage to which I've asked you to turn tells us about the garden and the mess and the city and how to get from where we are to our intended destination. Please take a look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. 
But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, it may not sound like it at first, but believe it or not, that's talking about you and me and about God's original design when he made us. So to get the backstory that surrounds Easter, you need to understand the first point that's in that outline on the back of your program, that we were made by God for great things. We were made for great things. Now, if we understand the passage that we just read rightly, it's an amazing, absolutely amazing passage with regard to what God has to say about the crowning achievement of his original creation, humanity. And that's because what we just read is all about human beings and what it is that we were intended to be. When it asks in verse 6, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care of him, it's speaking of humanity. It's speaking of us. Now, how do I know that it's talking about humanity when it says that? What is man? What is the son of man? Well, verses 6 and 7, if you'll take a close look there, and the first line of verse 8 are in quotation marks because they're a quotation from a portion of the first part of your Bible. It's actually in Psalm number 8. And we're going to see that it helps us understand what's meant now in Hebrews 2. You know it's a quote because verse 6 begins this way. There's a place where someone has testified. Now that sounds like a weird way to quote the Bible. You know, somebody said somewhere. Isn't the writer of Hebrews being flippant with the Bible? Doesn't he know where that's located so he can say? It says in Psalm number 8. Well, if you were to go through the 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews, you would find that the writer quotes the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, 38 times. And so he's certainly someone who reveres, reverences the Bible. And every time he quotes the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, he does it accurately. And he clearly knows that portion of the Bible very well. And yet in all those 38 quotations and allusions to the first part of the Bible, it never cites the human author, never. It never says Moses said this, or David said this, or Isaiah said this. In fact, the writer of Hebrews doesn't even give us his own name. Now, why is that? Because he wants the focus to be on God, not the persons that God used. He wants us to always remember it's God who is ultimately speaking in Scripture, no matter the human author who penned God's words. And so, in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke by the prophets, but it's God the Son who is now really speaking to us. And so, verses 6 and 7, and the first line in verse 8, are a quote from Psalm number 8 in the first part of your Bible. And those verses speak of humanity. Now, I have to confess to you that over the years, as I have read Psalm number 8, and then it quoted in Hebrews 2, I thought those verses dealt with Jesus. Now, verse 9 is going to return to speaking of Jesus, but these verses, 6, 7, and the first part of 8, speak of us and the fact that we were made for great things. When Psalm 8 and verse 6 in Hebrews 2 speak of the Son of Man, I automatically used to think, and perhaps you do as well, of Jesus, because that was Jesus' actual favorite phrase for himself when he walked the earth, Son of Man. 
But the phrase son of in your Bible, as our folks in our church have heard me say a number of times over the years, that phrase son of means this, to have the character of a person or thing. And so the Bible speaks of James and John as the sons of thunder. It means that these boys had the character qualities of thunder. That means they were rowdy. Or it speaks of a guy named Barnabas as the son of encouragement. That means if you looked at his life, it would be characterized by things associated with encouragement. Son of man refers to those who have the character of man or humanity. And Jesus is son of God and son of man. That's saying that he has the character of God and the character of man. And here in Hebrews 2, it refers to the human beings God created, not just Jesus. Now, we know this because, as I've said, it's a quote from Psalm number 8. Psalm number 8, like most of the Psalms, is is Hebrew poetry. And this is one of the things that Hebrew poetry is characterized by. Something called parallelism. A lot of times you'll just have two lines. One line will state something, and then the next line will state the same thing in different words. And so what is man that you are mindful of him? And now the second line is saying the same thing. What is the son of man that you care for him? Man, son of man, are speaking of the same thing, simply speaking of humanity. And so the passage is speaking of us, you and me. And in verses 7 and 8, it says, you made him, you made humanity, a little lower than the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. This passage is speaking of the uniqueness of humanity and our special purpose within God's creation that we see from the very first chapter of the Bible. God made the first man and the first woman, and the Bible tells us that God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That first man and first woman were the king and queen of creation over all that God had made. They were his crowning achievement, made to rule as God's vice regent over his world. No other creature is given that mandate. God says to us, as humanity, I want you to rule it. I want you to run my world on my behalf. We alone among God's creation have this unique person, and God has endowed humanity with the unique capacities to fill that purpose. Humanity alone among God's creation is made in the image of God. It means that we alone, among all the animal creation, everything else, we alone can say things like, I am, I can, I ought, I will. I mean, just think about those. You know, your cherished pet, Fido, your dog can't say any of that. Not only because he can't speak, he can't even think that. He never has a moment where he thinks, I am. How did I get here? All he's thinking about is his next meal. Not letting anybody intrude on his next meal. But we can think outside of ourselves. We have not only a self-awareness, but we have a built-in God-awareness. I am. I can. God has given us unique creative abilities to do the things that he's assigned to us, which are to fill and to subdue, according to the passage on the screen. We alone among God's creation can say, I ought, that is, we have a moral sense that I ought to do certain things, I ought not do other things. God has given a conscience to every 
human creature that he has made. I will. That is, we have the power of volition. I will carry out these particular plans for which I was created. And so the Bible teaches, friends, we were made for great things. And that's why we humans have this built-in sense of something beyond ourselves to which we aspire. That's why we like to attach ourselves to things that are bigger than us. For instance, we attach ourselves to sports teams or to political campaigns. And we say of our favorite team, we're number one, when in fact we've never suited up a day in our life. Or a volunteer donates hours of time for a candidate because he or she represents a cause that we believe in. We have this sense of transcendence, something beyond the mundane, beyond the here and now. But unfortunately, we don't think in terms of great things, and here's why. Because sin minimizes. It causes us to reduce the size of our purpose to the shape of our lives. We have a small view, a tiny view, a narrow view of what it is we're to be about. People still have, even after sin has entered God's good world, and if we were to read beyond Genesis 1 into Genesis 3, we would see how that happened, and yet people still have the lingering image of God. It's not been completely obliterated. We know we were made for something more, for something great, but unfortunately we settle for things that are too small. And so one author has said, we were made for more than filling up our schedules, ruling tiny kingdoms, with a population of one. The Bible teaches, friends, that we were indeed made for great things. But I say secondly in your outline that all too often we have settled for small things. The tragedy is we don't live up to our grand purpose. We were made for great things, but we give ourselves to and we settle for small things. And it's a tragedy of immense proportions and that tragedy is expressed at the end of verse 8 in Hebrews 2. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. <laughs> well, that's one of the great understatements in the entire Bible. Man was made for great things and for all things that God created to be under him. And yet at present, we don't see that. We don't see that happening yet. It's saying we're in the mess we are now at present because man is not fulfilling the purpose for which God made him. At present, we do not see all things subjected to humanity and humanity ruling as God's vice regent. And in this one eloquent sentence, the writer encompasses sin and all of its effects. Yet at present, we do not see all things subject to him. And as a result of this, friends, rather than living for the great things for which God has created us, we live for the small things that so easily allure us. French scientist Henri Depoy uh, invented something to preserve meat for soldiers during World War I. It's simply plastic that has had its molecules stretched under high temperatures and then cooled. The soldier's meat was preserved, and so we've been finding uses for Henri's invention ever since. It makes it nearly impossible for you to open your child's new toy, or that CD that you can't wait to listen to, or the pocket knife you just got at the hardware store, 
We use it to protect antique books, the ski boat between seasons, and you all know it very well. It's called shrink wrap. And what happens with us in our lives is that we are very much like this shrink wrap. The amazing thing about shrink wrap is that it does it every time without fail. It's one of the most successful and predictable products ever invented. It will always shrink to the exact size of whatever it's been wrapped around. And the effect of sin is very similar to that. But its influence is much more comprehensive. Sin causes fundamental changes, hear this, to the molecules of our hearts. No longer is my heart driven by a deep-seated love for God. No longer is my heart motivated by a genuine care for others. No longer do I carry around a sense of responsibility for the surrounding created world. No longer is every decision that I make shaped by a clear sense of what is morally right and morally wrong. No longer is everything I do shaped by joyful and thankful worship for which I was made. The DNA of sin is selfishness. And it shrinks the size of my universe to the size of one. Sin creates, as one author has said, the ultimate shrink dynamic. And he gives, does this author, a number of real-world examples. You see it in the wordless infant, who in the crib stiffens his body in anger because his mother had the audacity to leave the room. You see it in the endless fights of young children over who had the toy first and who hit whom first. You see it in the endless repetition of a teenager's self-centered complaints. You see it in the hardships of the first few years of marriage when the newlyweds are shocked by what it takes to live in a loving relationship with another human being. You see it in how difficult it is for people of a church to be united. You see it in drivers racing for a parking spot, in a million moments of human covetousness and envy. You see it in broken families, in crime-ridden cities. You see it in the bitter complaints of the old man as his life ebbs away. Sin atrophies our care and shrinks our concern. No matter how you dress it up, friends, the news isn't really that good. Sin leaves us caring about our, our lives more than others. It is a condition in which we were simply not made to live. We were made for great things, but we settle for very small things. And here's what sin does. It moves us and shifts our focus to what one author calls nowism. Instead of remembering what we were made to be and looking forward to a full restoration of that in the future, we get completely immersed in the here and now, the present. We see our small vision in our nowism. There are many consequences to it. Forgetting what we were made to be, forgetting what we will be, and then pursuing that very small purpose in the here and now. And so when we are despondent, and perhaps you were that way just this week, it means we're only focused in our lives on what's going on now. When we are angry, We are saying things like, I should have better. I don't have as much as I deserve. I'm angry with you for not providing it and my parents for not giving me more. I'm ultimately angry with God for not supplying what I deserve to have. Living in the now, because it ain't here right now. And I can't wait for it to come in the future. I deserve it now, when I want it. Nowism affects the fear and the anxiety that we have. Because they are really, at bottom, obsessions with the here and now and what's going on in my life right now. 
The author of Hebrews reminds us that we were made for great things, but we settle for small things. We do not see man ruling for God, and so we pursue our own kingdom. But thanks be to God, we're given the solution to all of this in verse number 9. In contrast to the end of verse 8 and what we do not see, verse 9 turns our attention away from ourselves and to something else. No, actually to someone else. The end of verse 8 says, At present we do not see everything subject to Him, to humanity, but we see Jesus. And that's the third point in your outline. Jesus can restore us to great things. You see, friends, we need someone who can free us from the narrow vision of our purpose. And that one is none other and only Jesus. The same phrases in verse 9 are used of Jesus that are used of humanity in general in verse 7. He's a little lower than the angels. He's been crowned with glory and honor. Now hear this. This is what's being said there. Jesus is what we were designed to be. Jesus is what you and I were made to be. And you and I will never become what we were made to be until we are related to Him. And how are we related to Him? That brings us to the specific events of Easter. Verse 9 says that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He was crowned because he suffered and died. Now how does his suffering become the cause, the reason for him being crowned with glory and honor? Hear this. It's because Jesus obeyed where the first Adam, our father, representing us, who did exactly what all of us would have done, Jesus obeyed where the first Adam, our representative, disobeyed. Jesus obeyed where we have disobeyed. We were made to be crowned with glory and honor, but because of sin, we have missed our calling, every last one of us. But the Bible refers to Jesus elsewhere as the second Adam. And he has succeeded where the first Adam failed. Because of Jesus, if we're related to him... We can be, now get this, we can be clothed with the glory and honor for which we were made. Just like now, because we're related physically and spiritually to the first Adam, we inherit his sin and all of its messy consequences. And so the Bible says, Just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. But in contrast, to the disobedience of the one. Now notice, this is what Scripture says about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And as a result of that, that passage goes on to say this, because Jesus was obedient, suffered, and died on the cross, therefore, and notice I have the word therefore, highlighted for you. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place. 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus restores us to what it is we were designed to be. And he does that, I say in your outline, by having lived for us. Jesus came. God became man and lived the life that you should have lived and that I should have lived. And so I, have a, I had a former seminary professor who used to ask the question, do you have to be good to go to heaven? And it was always a trick question. We would always say, no, because if you have to be good to go to heaven, nobody goes to heaven because none of us are good. In fact, the Bible actually says there's no one good, no, not one. And then he zinged us with, well, in fact, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. And so you're not and I'm not, so how can any of us go to heaven then? Someone must live the life that you should have lived. And the good news is Jesus lived that life. Jesus lived for us. But Jesus not only lived for us, I say in your outline, Jesus died for us. Jesus was able to live a perfect life because he was God. And he was able to be our substitute in his life and in his death because he was man. Because he was God, his life, now hear this, was of infinite value. And the sacrifice that he gave on the cross was of infinite worth. Do you understand, dear friends, that in our sin, in failing to rule God's world for him and as he intended, in our sin, because of our sin, we've committed infinite offense against God every last one of us. The payment required then is infinite. And just like you can't live a perfect life, you can't make an infinite payment. So we need someone who can, and Jesus did. The alternative is that we pay for our sin eternally ourselves. If it's an infinite offense then it will take eternity for us to pay it back and it will actually never be paid in full. Jesus was able to do in one act on the cross what no other person could do. Jesus lived for us and Jesus died for us. And I say lastly in your outline, Jesus lives for us. He lived in the past a perfect life when he walked the earth 2,000 years ago. But the Bible teaches as well that he currently still lives for us. You see the therefore again at the top of the screen? Because he obeyed when he suffered and died, because Jesus did that therefore, God was pleased with the totality, God the Father, pleased with the totality of the life and death and mission of Jesus. And therefore, as a result, he has been raised and he is exalted. That's because he obeyed in life and death and he now therefore lives and he can change our lives. If we understand what we were made to be and we look forward to what we will be, then we live radically different lives in the here and now. We march to the beat of a different drummer. We live according to different values. We do not heed the siren call of the culture that captures our attention. We are, in the words of Hebrews chapter 11, people who are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. 
And for those who have come to realize that and embrace the life and the death of Jesus, who died the death we deserve, lived the life that we should have lived, when we do that and we're rightly related to him, we are now restored to what we were made to be. That will have its fulfillment in the future, but even has effects in the here and now. The Bible says this about those who have done that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And for those who do that in the here and now, who embrace what Jesus has done in his life and death and are then rightly related to him, there will come the consummation of all things at the end of history. The Bible speaks of that in the last book of the Bible. In fact, in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, here's what it says. The city will have the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now get this, no longer will there be any curse. Thanks be to God. We are thereby restored to the pristine garden for which we were made. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him and notice they will reign. Remember we were made to do that? And they will reign forever and ever. Two people in a garden has now become a multitude of thousands upon ten thousands and ten thousand upon ten thousand in a city made for God. Only in Jesus can we become what we were designed to be. Friends, if you've never been related to Jesus, please understand, He's the only way to be restored. The one absolutely perfect representative of humanity. And I say at the bottom of your outline, only in Jesus can we become what we were created to be. If you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, believing who He is, God having come as man, believing what He did, living an absolutely perfect life, and dying a death on your behalf, if you have never done that and received Him personally, then you are not now and will not be in the future what you were made to be. But He offers that gift to you. And so we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. What do I do? I realize that the writer of Hebrews was describing me when he says, yet at present, we do not see all things subject to him. Yep, that's an understatement. I'm a sinner. Recognize Jesus died for your sin. Repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give my life to you. Receive Jesus. How do I do that? We're going to bow, and when we do, you can pray a prayer similar to the one on the screen. It's not an incantation. It's not a formula. It's from your heart to God, acknowledging you're a sinner, and you see your need for him as your Savior. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you once again for what this day represents. We thank you for all of the events of Holy Week. We thank you for Maundy Thursday, where a new command, a new mandate, you gave to your first followers that we love one another. On the night before Jesus died, we thank you for Good Friday, and we thank you that Good Friday is indeed good. 
because Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves and that his death on the cross was acceptable to you because he lived an absolutely sinless life. And as a result, he has been raised for our justification. And so Jesus has done what we could not do and does in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your grace in the salvation that is in the life and death of Jesus. I thank you for the impact that that has had on me both now and for eternity. And I pray that there are those who are turning to you in faith right now, that your spirit is tugging on their hearts and drawing them to yourself. We thank you for this holy week, and we thank you that we serve a risen Lord in whose name we pray. Amen.